Amen, amen. Well, you know that ascending church is also a receiving church. Paul described it that way in 1 Corinthians chapter number 16. And uh, we today see the benefits of sending because we have also received back one that we sent. Uh, Many of you uh, know Leah. Uh, She and Rashad are permanent fixtures around here. But uh, you may not know uh, Al. Uh, Al is one of ours as well, and we graciously have sent him on loan to Grace Covenant Church that started in uh, 2020 in Panama City, but it's good to have them be able to step in. Our normal worship uh, team was just decimated on the same Sunday by circumstances outside of their control And uh, we've got an ace in a hole. We know we can always call Al and he'll come back and do a wonderful job just like he's doing down at Grace Covenant. So Al, thank you and Leah for doing that for us. Now here we go. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter number 15 is where we are. Man, man, man. 1 Corinthians 15, it's like it'll never end, huh? It's the chapter that never ends. But it's going to end today. Uh, it's going to end on a high note. I think we have been in this one chapter now for five or six weeks. Who has their sermon listening guides handy? Count and see how many we've got out of 15. But uh, nonetheless, here we are in the last paragraph or the last two paragraphs of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And you know we're down to the short rows as it relates to this entire book that we undertook preaching through paragraph by paragraph about a year ago. So here we go, uh, verse, verses number 50 through 58 is where we are today, so why don't you follow along as I read from my New American Standard. The Apostle Paul says this in conclusion about the resurrection of believers. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, period. Now look, he has just concluded a masterfully composed logical argument supporting the future resurrection of all believers. Now verse number 58 is the therefore which says, in light of all of this, this is how you ought to live. This is the effect that this truth should have on your life today. Here are the implications of this grand doctrine. Verse number 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain 
in the Lord. And I can remember a time in my life when a story just was not a story. If it didn't begin with once upon a time, and it did not end with, and they all lived happily ever after. I can remember telling uh, a toddler a story because, man, my stories, I like to make them up on the fly, you know, that's just how I do. It's how I roll. So I was making up a good story telling the toddler not long ago, and when I got done, he said, that's not a good story. I said, why is that not a good story? He said, because it didn't end with, and they all live happily ever after. I said, well, okay, they all live happily ever after. He was happy then. So the question is, is the gospel is as good as it could be if it does not end itself with the epitaph and they all lived happily ever after. You see, because I think that's what Paul does in these concluding verses of 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. I think in spirit and I think in theory, Paul is attaching the epigram that says, and they all lived happily ever after. So let's look at that theme today as we consider these several verses and notice what it is that the Apostle Paul says about these verses and about them all living happily ever after. I think he gives us three reasons and it breaks down logically in verses 50 through 53, 54 through 57 with the conclusion in verse number 58. So why is it that Paul can say and why is it that we can say at the end of the gospel, that they all lived happily ever after. Well, verses 50 through 53 would tell us that they all lived happily ever after because of salvation's consummation. Salvation's consummation. You see, what he's describing here is the end. It's the finality. It's believers entering into their eternal destiny, into our eternal abode where we're going to be and how we're going to be with whom we're going to be for all eternity. And indeed, it is a very happy ending to the story. So notice what it is that Paul says as as he talks about salvation's consummation. I think he tells us about salvation's consummation and here's what strikes me as I read these verses. He tells us that salvation's consummation, the end out there, is very much like its initiation. Now, here's the thing about salvation. You know, we have initiation. We would call that sometimes justification. That's the moment that you are saved, the moment you're pronounced just before a holy God. Then we have its continuation. That's the everyday ongoing process of walking in the Spirit And we would call that sanctification. But now out here in the end where we're living today in verses 50 through 58 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that's the consummation. That's what's sometimes referred to as glorification. And you know, here's what's neat about it. This gives us a picture. It's consummation gives us a picture of its initiation. And initiation in microcosm shows us what Consummation shows us in macrocosm. So notice what strikes me. I want you to see this. How is it that 
it's like it's initiation. Hey, all of the verbs in this passage, well, let me take that back. Not all of them, but the majority of the verbs in this passage are found in the passive voice. Now, let me take you back to fifth grade grammar. You know, in English, there are two voices of the verb. There is the active and there is the passive. Active is when the subject is doing the action upon an object. For example, I kicked the ball. That's active. But if it's passive, it'll be said like this, the ball was kicked. You see, now the ball is the subject and there's an outside force working on the ball. And you see, that is what all of these verbs are telling us in this passage. Hey, the initiation of salvation is not something that you did. Did you know that? You can no more cause yourself to be born again spiritually than you can to cause yourself to be born the first time physically. Have you ever thought about that? What did you have to do with your first birth? You didn't have a thing to do with it, huh? I mean, your mom and dad made the decision. And it's the same way with the second birth, being born again spiritually. That is the decision of our Heavenly Father. We are born again. We don't cause ourselves to be born again. We are born again by God through the agency of His Word and the Spirit. And now notice how Paul stays consistent with this verb voice as they're found in the passive. Check this out. You know I'm a proponent of writing a little in your Bible. Don't highlight the whole paragraph. Just underline the key words. Check this out. Notice what he says. Let me give you some passive verbs. Look at verse number 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. Now... In the original language, this is marked off in plain form because one of the cool things about, about the language of the New Testament Greek is passives just wave red flags because they change forms. And the form is always consistent in the passive voice. So you could almost translate it like this. We will not all be put to sleep. Now you see that makes it a little bit more passive because something puts you to sleep. And what was it that put you to sleep? Well, it was death that put you to sleep. That's what it was. So it's death working on you that puts you to sleep. So there's the first passive. Now look at the next one. It's in the same verse. But we will all be changed. Now it didn't say we will all change ourselves, but we will all be changed. You see that? Man, listen, you can no longer change yourself from perishable to imperishable, as you can change yourself from being lost to saved. It's passive. It's something that somebody else does for you, and that somebody else is God Himself. So notice how the consummation is very much like the initiation. Notice some more passive verbs in here. He says, death is swallowed up. What is it swallowed up by? Well, it's swallowed up by victory. Notice in verse 52, I skipped it, the dead will be raised. You see, this is the equivalent of saying the ball was kicked, the ball is being kicked, 
and the ball will be kicked. All of them in the passive voice and that's what Paul does here. So the dead will be raised is passive. Something, some outside force is doing this upon us. And again, that outside voice is God, that outside force is the Lord. Notice the final verb in verse 52. And we will be changed. So all of these passive verbs, what are they telling us? They're telling us that the consummation of the salvation process is not something that we do for ourselves. What can a dead man do to change himself? Nothing. What can a dead man do to save himself? Nothing. There's something that must come into play and that something is not a thing, it's a someone and that someone is God. So here we go. God bringing it all to consummation. So we see that, that we're all going to live happily ever after because of, Sal's consummate, because of salvation's consummation. And we see that salvation's consummation is very much like its initiation. But notice what else. Not only is it like its initiation, but the consummation also has major alterations. That is major alterations in you. Hey, just like the initiation, can I get a testimony in here today? Will somebody witness to the fact that when you were born again, that's the initiation of salvation, when you were justified, that there was a major alteration that took place in your life? Huh? Are you the same old person? Man, if you are, maybe this hasn't happened to you because salvation brings alteration and it brings change. And Paul's talking about the major alterations that are going to come at the consummation of salvation. You see, in justification, at the initiation, they come in microcosm. Although they're big to us now, friend, they're nothing in comparison to the alterations going to take place at the consummation of salvation. Huh? Notice what it is that Paul says. Look at some of these alterations uh, in verse number 52. or, Or verse number 53. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. Perishable, perishable, perishable. I mean, what does a perishable mean? It means that your body has a shelf life. Did you know that? It does. It has a shelf life. And it's deteriorating. It's perishable. It's in the process of dying right now. Did you know that? That's a pretty sobering thought, isn't it? You are in the process of dying. You are in a race against biology, and it's not on your side. The hourglass is becoming more and more empty. Maybe I should turn that around and say the hourglass is becoming less and less full. I don't know. However you want to look at it. But nonetheless, perishable. You're falling apart. You're deteriorating. Here's what you're doing. You are degenerating. Did you know that? You are, your body... It's degenerating. Notice what else Paul says, the major alteration. He says, for this perishable must put on imperishable. You're going to go from waking up with a new ache and pain every day in a place that you wasn't even consciously aware of yesterday to spending all eternity in perfect, imperishable condition. My goodness. Bring some of that on, huh? Notice what else he says. He says... This perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. Immortality simply means you're never going to die again. It's all gone. 
you are no longer just mortal flesh and blood. Now, notice why Paul says these major alterations are necessary. Verse number 50. Let's talk about two things here real quick. Let's talk about... i got to add this because I didn't have room on your, on your listening guide for it. Number one, let's talk about atmosphere. Why are these changes necessary? Because notice what he says. He says that we must, in verse 53, there's that divine imperative. No other way around this. This has got to happen. We must, this perishable, uh, uh, must put on imperishable. And here's why. Look in verse number 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot, you see that word cannot, underline it. It means lacking the moral ability to do it. It's outside the scope of possibility. It's like putting a a round peg into a square hole. It just cannot happen. Or a square peg into a round hole. Cannot happen. It's a physical, spiritual impossibility. So here's what he says. He says, now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot, keyword cannot, inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. That's why the perishable, verse number 53, must put on imperishable. Here's why it is. Did you know that flesh and blood... What did he say flesh and blood cannot do? Cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now at this point he's talking about the consummated kingdom of God, okay? And, and, and what does the kingdom of God consist? Mainly it consists of all of the redeemed plus the unmitigated presence of God Himself. And did you know that you can't live in your current state in the unmitigated presence of God? You cannot. I had a professor that referred to this aspect of God as Him being a radioactive God. And He really is. You couldn't stand it. Moses couldn't stand it. Katie hit on it this morning in her Sunday school lesson. Do you remember in the Old Testament when the priest would go in once a year to the Holy of Holies and to the mitigated presence of God here on this planet and the tabernacle? Here's what they'd have to do. They'd put bells on the bottom of his robe. You know why? Because if they didn't hear that bell ringing anymore, they knew that the presence of God had consumed him and he was dead and they're lifeless on the floor. So what would they do? He would go in, they would tie a rope around his ankle. You know why? Because if the bells quit dinging, they knew they had to pull his decaying carcass out of there before he stunk the place up. Because nobody else could go in because if somebody else went in, guess what would happen to them? watched a movie one time about a nuclear sub where the reactor on the sub went bad. And the engineers inside the nuclear reactor room were just eaten alive by it. And if something didn't happen, everybody was going to die. And there was one guy, one engineer that says, I'll do it. And they opened the door and run that guy in and he wouldn't shut that reactor off, but he didn't make it back to the door before the radiation had consumed him. And I think my professor was on to something when he says, Our God is a radioactive God. And you can't survive in His unmitigated presence in your current form. You cannot. So it's necessary that we are changed. And boy, we're going to have a change of atmosphere. Who was it that wrote that song? Somebody sang a song about a change of atmosphere. It was Ronnie Millsap, wasn't it? 
Hey, I think it was. Somebody want to hit a, hit a note for me? I didn't think y'all did. But anyway, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, give yourself a change of atmosphere. The consummation, macrocosm, a change of atmosphere. You're going from perishable to imperishable. You're going from earth to the kingdom of God. Buddy, that's a big change. But think about the change of atmosphere that took place in your life when you were born again, huh? Are you living in a new atmosphere today as opposed to before you were born again? Man, if you're not, something's wrong. Something is dreadfully wrong. Can you see, we go from being in Adam spiritually to being in Christ. That's a change of atmosphere. Hey, we, we go from hanging out with the, with the crowd that corrupts good and morals to hanging out with a crowd that should cause you to be better every day, right? Man, there's a change of atmosphere. But notice, let's talk about something else. Not only let's talk about atmosphere, but let's talk about... Let's talk about this word. Look what Paul says when all of this happens. Verse number 52. In a moment. You see that word? Underline it. In a moment. How does this happen at the consummation? Is it like the initiation and the continuation? Absolutely not. Listen to me. It's instantaneous. And here's the word that Paul uses. Does anybody want to take a gander at that word and tell me what English word comes from it? You got it. Jerry, I didn't know you knew Greek. See there, you already... Just, just strike that off right there and here's what you got. You got... You're, you're what now? Okay, you're good. <laughs> he got... He, yeah, look at there. He, he knows a to, uh, uh, nuclear physics and he's got a passport. What else could you ask for in a deacon, right? <laughs> Paul says this all happens, here's the Greek word, atomos. Now, let me throw a little bit on you. What is this word that we get our word atom from? Well, it's got the alpha privative. Anytime you have an alpha privative, what is it? It basically negates the rest of the root word. So we can translate it like that, non. The root word right here means cuttable. So it's non-cuttable or non-divisible. You know, there's a reason why we call atoms atoms because for years, until the invention of things like electron microscopes, we thought the atom was the smallest unit that we could possibly conceive of as it relates to biology. So we named it after this Greek word which means non-cuttable. You can't cut it. You can't divide it. It's so small. You see, that was old knowledge. Now what are we doing with atoms? We're doing things like splitting them, nuclear fission and nuclear fusion. And when you go to messing with, with subatomic particles at that level, guess what you end up with? Nuclear explosions, right? But he, here's what he's saying. He says this is all going to happen, atomos. It's going to happen in a moment that is so quick, it is a nanosecond. It's smaller than a nanosecond. It's an amount of time that's so small that you can't cut it. You can't divide it. That's how it's going to happen. Wow. Well, that's salvation's consummation. Now look at here. All of this language that Paul uses just leads me to do an excursus. It's been a long time since we've been on an excursion, isn't it? So let's take a little excursion. Let's get off the main ship and get on our little boat take an excursion. What do y'all say? And here's the name of the excursion. What happens when I die? What happens to me when I die? 
Now let me tell you why it's necessary to take this excursion. Because do you see this word that Paul uses in here? He uses it as a metaphor. He says uh, in verse number, number 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. There's your word. You may want to put a star by it or underline it. Because here's the doctrine that so many people have built on this one word. And I'm going I'm to try to try to make this clear. Paul uses sleep as a metaphor for death for several reasons. Because Paul's, Paul says that Christ is kind of taking the teeth out of death. And now for a believer, it's not a vicious end of life. It's just sleep. But check this out. In context here, Paul is simply talking about your physical body. Sleep applies to your physical body. And he uses the word sleep, again, metaphorically, for several reasons, but the main reason is because of what it brings to mind. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever lain down and went to sleep and didn't expect to wake up? No. Every time you lay down to go to sleep, you think you're going to wake up in the morning, right? Every time you lay down and take a nap in the afternoon, you know you're going to wake up in just a little while. It's just a fact of life. You are going to wake up. And Paul says for the believer, it's that way. It's salvation's consummation. Listen, death's going to come along one day and it's going to put you and it's going to put me to sleep. But thanks be unto God, death is not permanent. It's just us taking a nap and you're going to wake up one day. And when you come up, you're going to be a lot stronger than when you went to sleep. You're going to have been changed atomously from perishable to imperishable. From mortal to immortal. But now here's what a lot of folk have done with this word sleep. I'm amazed at how many people in the scholarly community are drawn to this doctrine. And the doctrine is known as soul sleep. Have you ever heard of it? Huh? You've heard of soul sleep. Well, here's what they say. They say based on Paul's use of this word that when you die you go into this realm of suspended animation where you don't know anything. And the next conscious experience that you will have is when the trumpet sounds and you get up out of the grave. Now I say that is faulty hermeneutics. It's building a doctrine on a metaphor that Paul uses for death for a believer. So what is it that happens when I die? Let's get to our excursus, our excursion. Well, the material part of you goes to sleep. That's what happens. What part of you is it that goes to sleep? It's the physical part. It's your body. That's what we do when we go to the graveyard. We are putting you in bed. And one day, you're going to wake up because the trumpet's going to sound. And God is going to take control and God's going to work upon your dead, decayed carcass no matter how long you've been dead, how thinly you've been spread. God's power is infinite and you're going to reconstitute and you're going to come out of the grave imperishable. So your body goes to sleep. But what happens to the non-material part of you? Have you ever known that? Have you know this? You're more than just your body. Did you know it? You're more than just flesh and blood. Man, you're a living soul. You're a living spirit. Hey, if you, this is what, hey, this is what Buddhists will do to you. They'll try to trick you up and they'll say, put your finger on you. 
What part of you is you? See, that's how they play a, a little mind game with you. Well, uh, what do you mean, who am I? And, and they try to trip you all up. But here's the deal. You are body and you are soul and spirit. Here's, what, here's why death is so unnatural for us. Because death is the vicious separating of the psychosomatic unity of the human being. Body, soul, and spirit. The non-material part is being wrenched out of its home, your material part, that is your body. And that's what's so unnatural about death. That's why God never intended it. It's the result of sin. But here's what happens when death does that to you. Oh yeah, your physical part, your material part goes to sleep. God's not through with that part yet. But what happens to your non-material part? Well, your non-material part goes to be with the Savior. Man, I like this, don't you? I really do. So let me just give you a few scriptures that you may want to write down to see that Paul himself refers uh, or, or, or would refute this false doctrine of soul sleep. Look with me, write these scriptures down. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 8. Here's what Paul says. For we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be asleep in the grave. Does your Bible say that? What does it say? It does. It says to be absent from the body. You see, death just ripped you apart psychosomatically. So you're absent from the body, but notice what Paul says. Paul says, rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Isn't that cool? Son, you don't go to sleep in a pine box somewhere and stay in a state of suspended animation where you know nothing. Oh, your body goes to sleep, but the non-material part of you, define it how you want, soul, spirit. When you're absent from the body, you are present with the Lord. Now look, I'm talking to believers. If you're not a believer, then that's not you. You, Your non-material part goes a totally different direction. It goes another way down the highway. Check out another scripture. You may want to write it down. Philippians chapter 1, verse number 23. Would Paul endorse this idea of soul sleep? Well, just listen to what he says in, in verse 23 of Philippians chapter 1. But I am hard pressed from both directions, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ. What was Paul saying? He was saying, you know, uh, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Is dying gain if you're just going to spend the next 2,000 years in a pine box? Son, that's not gain, is it? How about this? Is it gain if when death psychosomatically separates you and your body goes to the grave, but by God, your non-material part goes to be in the presence of the living Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that gain? My word, I'm telling you it is. Look what Paul says, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. So check out verse number next, 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. We're writing down here what Paul says about what happens to a believer when they die. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you know he's dealing with the second coming. And listen to what he says in verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died, 
and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now did you see that? What was key in that verse? When He comes back to this physical earth to resurrect your decaying corpse out of a grave somewhere, guess who He's bringing with Him? Well, if you're, if you're in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a box, He's bringing you, right? He's bringing the non-material part. He's bringing all of those who have died throughout the generations with Him to witness the final consummation of what He initiated on Calvary's cross in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And everybody gets to have a front row seat to His final victory. My word. See, He can't bring them with Him if they're not already where? With Him. Exactly right. Now, just one more reference, and it's in Luke chapter 16. You remember Jesus told the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And have you, you ever read that story, by the way? And take note that it's in the middle of a parable section, but Jesus doesn't say, as He does with every other parable, Behold, I tell you a parable. He just says, let me tell you a story. There was this rich man and Lazarus. So historical figures... They both died. The rich man died and Lazarus died. And did they just go into a state of suspended animation? No, sir. They were in a conscious existence, one of them in the presence of the Lord and the other in the presence of suffering. So what happens to me when I die? Let's end this excursus and get back on the main ship. Well, what happens to you when you die is your body goes to sleep but the non-material part of you goes immediately into the presence of the Lord. Alright, back on the main ship now. They all lived happily ever after because of salvation's consummation. They all lived happily ever after in verses 54 through 57 because of salvation's celebration. Now check this out. You know, there is going to be a celebration at the consummation. And here's what the celebration is all about. Look with me again in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. Here's what Paul says. He quotes Scripture in verse 54. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. And he goes into a... This is almost a song because it has rhythm. It has meter. It's just a catchy little rhythmic type of saying. So he's probably singing this. And here's what he's really doing. He's really taunting death itself. It's almost as if the Apostle Paul is speaking to death and he puts his thumbs in his ears and he does like this to it. Because look what he says. He says, Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? So here's salvation's celebration. It is complete. Complete. Death is the last enemy to be conquered. I had somebody ask me not long ago, somebody who was... Who was uh, who was a first-time guest at Grace Church, just came up and said, Pastor Richie, I have a question for you. So said, lay it on me. They said, why would God even worry about a resurrection? Because if I ever escape this body, I don't want to go back to it again. And I said, well, your presupposition is wrong. You're not going back to this body. You're going back to a glorious, imperishable, immortal body that can never be touched again by degenerating effects of sin and death. Never again. But here is also the logical necessity for the resurrection. If God doesn't resurrect the dead bodies of His people, then guess what? Death won. 
Did it not? I mean, it might be a little victory, but nonetheless, death can gloat and say, ha, that's all right, I got part of him, and it's right here underneath that tombstone. God's not going to allow death to have any part of victory when it comes to His people. Son, His victory that He initiated on Calvary's cross that He's going to conclude at the resurrection is going to take every aspect of who you are. And you're going to be transformed into the image of His glory. 100% victory. Victory is complete. But notice, not only is this celebration complete, but it's also Christ-centered. Look what Paul says. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But look, here he erupts again into praise. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, it's Christ-centered. There's going to be no doubt who did it. There's going to be no doubt why He did it, how He did it, where He did it. It's going to be on public display that Jesus Christ is victorious. There's not one thing that He lost. He took it all. Now look, i got to hurry because this is where I really wanted to be. All, of I, all I've said so far has just been the preamble to verse number 58. Because 58 is where the rubber meets the road for daily living. So let's check it out. They all lived happily ever after because of salvation's consummation, because of salvation's celebration, and finally in verse 58, because of salvation's compensation. Compensation. Yeah, look at this like pay. Let me ask you a question. Does it pay to be a believer? Jerry, nobody else is convinced. Me and you are. <laughs> hey, it pays. It pays to be a believer. Now look, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about do re me, huh? I'm talking about it pays dividends that do re me can't touch. Things that money can't buy. That's salvation's cons- uh, compensation. Now let me show you where I get this. Notice verse number 58. Here's what he says. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding. Put that word abounding in parentheses. Abounding. Here's what the original word means and how it's translated. It can be translated profit. It can be translated as overflowing. It can be translated as fulfilled. Here's what Paul's saying. In light of this doctrine, do this and you will be completely overflowing, you will be overcompensated, you will be overpaid, you will be overjoyed, you will be overvictorious, you will be overfilled, you are over everything. Because God doesn't do all of this in order just to let you scrape by and live off the bottom of the barrel. So here's the reason right here why so many believers who profess to be believers, if you really look into their eyes, you can tell they're miserable. They're just miserable. And their present life doesn't square at all with the gospel of Jesus Christ that talks about joy unending. Here's why. Paul's telling us how to be overfilled, how to be overjoyed, how to be overflowing. So notice what he says about salvation's consummation. And there's a couple of ways to interpret this phrase that he uses here. Notice the phrase, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So let's look at that one phrase and and, and let me take you to school here. It's what's known as 
as the preposition in... Ye, oh, wait a minute. I'm, I'm writing Greek. In plus a substantive that's in the locative form. Now, here's what it all means. Don't worry about all that. I'm just gonna, I want you to see the basis of what I'm saying. There are two ways to interpret this, in plus the locative. Number one, it can be translated as a locative of reference. And if it's a locative of reference, then in the Lord means this. It means always abounding in reference to the work of the Lord. So write this phrase down. Here's the phrase I want you to take away from all of this. It means that, you, that, that, that your schedule is overflowing with the business of God. Write it down. That's where, I, that's where all of this comes from. It means that your schedule, your day planner, your calendar, your schedule is overflowing with the business of God. Now look here. How much of the 168 hours in your week do you give to the business of God? You see, if, you're, if your calendar as a believer isn't overflowing with the business of God, you can forget the compensation part. You can forget the overflowing part. You can forget the overjoyed part because you're still living a self-centered life and the only thing on your agenda is what you want to do. Here's what happens when God saves us. He makes us want what He wants. Paul's going to talk in chapter 16 about folk who had addicted themselves to the ministry, to the work of the Lord. It is addicting. Why? Because that's when you're overflowing. That's when you experience the joy of God. Hey, here's what Nehemiah said when they were building the wall. The joy of the Lord is our strength. It's our strength. You don't have joy if you're not involved in the Father's business. Jesus said, I must be about my Father's business. So if we translate in plus the locative as a locative of reference, then that means our schedule. You can look at your day planner and see that your schedule's overflowing with the business of God. But there's another way to translate in plus the locative, and that is as a locative of sphere. And here's the way you translate it. It means while you are doing this, this is what happens. So here's the, here's the, here's the, here's the takeaway I want you to write down. Number one, if it's a locative of reference, then your schedule's overflowing with the business of God. If it's a locative of reference, then here it is. Your soul is overflowing with the blessings of God. Always abounding, Jerry, abounding. Always being overcompensated. Always being overfilled. Always being overjoyed. That, that, that's what Paul's getting at here. So if it's a locative of reference, then it means your soul is overflowing with the blessings of God. Who doesn't want that? Huh? I mean, I think sometimes folk come to the Lord and say, well, here I am, bless me if you can. Huh? <laughs> Whether I want it or not, God, just bless me. Now here's the beauty about it. Here's what I've learned in grammatical analysis and scriptural interpretation. When, when Paul's construction, as it does here, the N plus the locative, give us two options, it's best not to do either or. It's best to do both and. Because here's the deal. Your soul is not going to be overflowing with the blessings of God 
if your schedule is not overflowing with the business of God. It just does not happen. Those two go like this. So if you're struggling, your joy tank's running a little bit low, and your depression tank is running a little bit high, let me tell you what you need to do. Get, you, get, get busy. Get busy. Get busy. Get busy in the business of God. And you'll turn all that around. Listen, that's not me. That's Paul. So check out what Paul says about this. Who is it that God compensates? There's four classes here, I think, that, or, or, that, that four ways we can put ourselves on God's payroll. Man, that's a pretty good thought, isn't it? Huh? All you got to do is clock in sometimes. Punch your card and you're on God's payroll. So number one, here's who God compensates. God compensates those who belong to the family. Look what he says in verse number 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, underline that word brethren. Who are the brethren? I tell you who it is. It's who, those who have been born of the same father, that is God the Father. It's those who have been born again, those who are in the family of faith. So who is it that God compensates? Hey, you can forget being overflowing if you've never been born again. Requirement number one, you've got to belong to the family. Because God pays those who are in the family. He compensates those who are in the family. That's all there is to it. If you're outside the family, and you might know something about the general blessings of God because you're a living be person being made in the, in, in the image of God, but you know nothing about the spiritual blessings that are unique to those who are in Christ. And can I ask you, do you possess more to your spirituality than just a lost person who's having a run of good luck? Most time we start talking about our blessings that God gives us and it's nothing more than a, than, a, than a lost person who's having good fortune could say. God, I thank you for my job. I thank you for my house. I thank you for my family. You, you ain't even on spiritual ground yet. I know lost people that can say that. Got to belong to the family before you know something about these unique spiritual blessings that God only gives to His children. Check out number next. Who is it that God compensates? Number one, He compensates those who belong to the family. Number two, He compensates those who believe with conviction. Look what He says in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, there's the family members, be steadfast. That word steadfast means to be settled. It means to be seated. It's built on the word for a chair. So here's what we're to do with our biblical convictions. We're to sit down. And by golly, I'm not moving. I'm settled. Those who believe with conviction. Do you know that your convictions define you as an individual? If your convictions change, then you change. And Paul says don't do that. And, and what belief is he talking about in the context of 1 Corinthians 15? You got it. Everything is understood contextually. She's talking about be steadfast, sit down like a mule who sits down and says, I ain't plowed another row. Huh? You ever seen a mule sit down? I bet you hadn't. You ain't ever walked behind one long enough, huh? <laughs> but that's how we ought to be sometimes. Just sit down like an old stubborn mule and say, this is my convictions, this is where I sit. 
Paul says that's who God compensates. Those who belong to the family. Those who believe with conviction. And look what else he says. God compensates those who behave with consistency. Look. Immovable is the next word. And then right after that, the next word is always. Do you see that? You know what he's showing us here? He's showing us people who behave consistently. He's showing us those who are, whose commitment is so rock solid that you ain't got to worry about it. Where they're going to be. Where they're going to stand on a certain issue. Where they're going to be. What position they're going to take. Hey, get this. Here's one of the things that gets me about Grace Church. Man, we run two different crowds almost on any given Sunday. That's not immovable. Friend, if you're an every other Sunday type of person, that's not immovable. God doesn't compensate that. God compensates those who behave out of their convictions with consistency always. Here's what else we have at Grace Church. We have a good number of folk that you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about if the weather's good, are they going to go fishing or are they going to come worship the Lord? Because <laughs> by golly, their character is of such that they are settled in their convictions, they are immovable in their behavior, and they are consistent. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. They're consistent. Check out number next, and I've got to be done. I'm, look here, we're coming right down on time. God compensates those who belong to the family. God compensates those who believe with conviction. God compensates those who behave with consistency. And then finally, look what he says. God compensates those who bear the load of ministry. Look what he says. Always abounding, there's our word, in the work, ergon, in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil, to, uh, kopos, we get our word copious from it. It means hard, strenuous, back-breaking, brow-sweating work. Now, hey, when was the last time you broke a sweat for the Lord? Hey, listen, coming to church on Sunday and worshiping, that's not the work of the Lord. That's what we get to do. That's the celebration part. That's the party part. Hey, we're ascending church. Have you ever noticed at the end of every service we say, Grace Church, you are sent. You're sent into the fields to work. And this is who God compensates. God compensates those who bear the load of ministry, those whose schedule is overflowing with the business of God. Because get this, God is not like the United States government. Thank you. God does not compensate nor pay people not to work. He does not. Who is it that has their soul overflowing with the blessings of God, the things that money can't buy? It's the one who's bearing the load of ministry, who's breaking a sweat in the work of the Lord. Because God doesn't compensate couch potatoes. He doesn't compensate those who sit and soak. God compensates, compensates those who feverishly serve. You see, the kingdom of God is very much different from this world. You know, in this world, have you ever noticed down at your job, place of employment, it's the squeaky wheel that always gets the grease? Have you ever noticed that? 
It's the one who's always complaining that gets the special benefits and special treatment while the hard workers are just taken for granted. Listen, it's not like that in God's kingdom. If you're a squeaky wheel, you get nothing. Just go ahead and burn your wheelbarrow out until it smokes. But by golly, if you're a wheel that's carrying the load, God will oil you every day till you're overflowing. You'll be, you'll be so well-oiled, you will be a proverbial well-oiled machine. Hey, listen to me. They all lived happily ever after. It's going to be good in the sweet by and by. But watch me. It's pretty dang good right here in the here and now. Because God overpays for what you do. It's amazing to me. When Heather and I lived in Kudurupu, Maranhão, Brazil for several years, we'd have church groups come down and they'd see our house. Man, it's just crude structure. The, the, hey, you know, Felicia, the ends ain't even closed. Bats come in at night, or they go out at night. They come in in the morning. Ge- gecko lizards come in down the wall. Uh, we live with the critters. That's all there is to it. No hot water, no microwave ovens, none of that. And we'd have folk come down on U.S. teams, and they'd always at the end of it, end up saying something like this. Man, we just can't believe y'all have given up what you've given up and come down here and you're doing this. And when they start doing that, me and Heather just kind of get quiet because we know that we haven't given up a thing. Because our soul is overflowing with the blessings of God. Because God overcompensates those who serve Him and serve Him well. Hey, get in and get you some of it. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for these folk who are here today that are on the path. Thank you for these folk who are here today that want to serve you with everything they've got. Thank you for these folk who want to see Bonifay impacted with the gospel. Thank you for these folk who want to see the ends of the earth touched with the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, we pray that you would help us be those people who can be on your payroll and be on your payroll without feeling guilty about it. So I pray in Jesus' name today that you've done a work in our hearts. You have caused us to be settled, to be seated in our convictions. And that's going to cause us, God, to be consistent in our behavior. It's going to cause us to bear the load because who wants to show up one day in heaven realizing everything that you've done for us and that we did so little for you in return here on this earth. So I pray for those, God, whom you're calling. They've never been a part of the family. They have never been born again. They don't belong to the family. I pray today in Jesus' name they've heard the still small voice of the Spirit calling them, and this is the day of salvation. I pray for those whom you're calling to unite with this family of faith and be a part of what you're doing here at Grace Church. God, give them the faith today to step out. And I pray for those whom you're calling to serve and bear the load no matter where it may be in your service. In Jesus' name, God calls us to take a step today of faith because without faith it's impossible to please you. So God, do what only you can do. Move us to obedience by your great grace. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.